Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net, right there, and also on YouTube. Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and most leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk. And whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your interest and support. My guest today is Steve Arrington, a percussionist and drummer who emerged in the late 1970s as one of his generation's most distinctive lead singers while fronting Slave, one of my very favorite and greatest funk bands, in my opinion, of all time. Steve, so glad to have you joining us uh, today, live from Ohio. Absolutely. Great to be here, Scott. No doubt. Appreciate it. Um, before we get deep into it, I want to uh, share with you and, and the viewers a little bit of how I first got into Slave. As a middle schooler, uh, middle schooler back then we called it junior high, in 1974, the very first album I ever bought with my own money was Skin Tight by the Ohio Players. And, uh, you know, that got me deep into uh, getting into the funk and especially funk that came from Ohio. Being from Los Angeles, I had never been out of California. So in Ohio may as well have been on, you know, on the moon to me. I, I didn't know, you know, what it was geographically and I didn't realize what a hotbed of funk music it was. But, you know, I got into Sun and Slave and, um, of course, Bootsy and all those bands. Only, only later came to find out you know, what, what that area is all about. Um, shift a few years later to the summer of 77 and going to the beach every day in Santa Monica, California, we would bring this little radio. It was a little more than a transistor radio at that time. It was, you know, right before they really got, you know, the boom boxes going. And a song was coming on the radio that sounded unlike any other. It had, uh, you know, this rumbling bass and it had a bicycle horn. And it had this screaming guitar, and it was none other than Slide. And that played like every single day on the hour that whole summer. And I mean, it was just unbelievable and got me hooked on Slave for Life. It was around that time, this is like early high school, when you know I used to scrimp and save every dime I could so I could go and get albums when they came out. But in the neighborhood where I live, in the west side of Los Angeles in Santa Monica, you know, they didn't get albums, you know, if they got the albums at all by the Black Funk Acts, it wasn't, you know, until much later. So I would have to take multiple buses to the Crenshaw District of L.A. Um, to get the records when they came out at VIP Records. And it was a really cool store. They had a DJ in the center of the store and they used to play uh, tracks all the time. They had big murals painted outside of the album covers. And it was like a, you know, a fantasy land for me. But I would go there every day uh, to get these releases. And one of the most vivid ones I can I can share with you is in 1978, going there and getting the concept on its day of release. And this is still that original album that I got from back in 1978. And this is also the first Slave album that our guest today, Steve Arrington, appeared on with Slave. And so I wanted to share a bit of that with you before getting deep into our interview 
and uh, find out more about Steve and how he became part of the concept and eventually arrived where he is today. So with that, uh, Steve, are you ready to uh, dig in? No doubt. Let's do it. Okay. So going way back, um, you know, growing up, what kind of childhood did you have and um, how did music become front and center with you? Well, I grew up in the west uh, side of Dayton, Ohio, which is where most of the acts that are from Dayton, like Lakeside, Ohio Players, uh, Sun, of course, uh, Basil, groups like that, all came over from the same area on the west side of Dayton. And so coming up, uh, I can remember on Saturdays, we'd have our Saturday cleanup mornings and my mother would play music on uh, the stereo as we would clean up. Uh, and she played music, uh, well, like Jimmy Smith, Walk on the Wild Side, all of the Aretha, early Aretha Atlantic sides, also like Aretha when she was singing more jazz, I think it was on uh, Columbia or Capitol, one of those two, I'm not sure exactly which uh, label, but my mother listened to a lot of styles of music. Uh, of course, Motown and so on and so forth. Um, so music was always in the house. And of course, in school, I would I signed up to uh, get uh, the music class in school and play in the band in, in uh, junior high and then on into high school. Uh, so music was always around. My grandmother loved music as well. So we'd go visit my grandmother and she always had music going. She would have like songs like Kansas City, Here I Come. Mm -hmm. um, she was into uh, Etta James, uh, James Brown, early James Brown, please, please, please. That music was always around. And so music was just a part of my everyday life. Um, what particularly got me into it was the fact that um, I always dug the beat. And so I would uh, get pots and pans and my school books and lay them out on my couch. And then I would beat on the different uh, books to get a higher or lower sound. And of course the pots and pans to get uh, a more attacking sound. Uh, yeah, and so I started out just playing pots and pans at the house and my parents saw, you know what, he's got something here. And so my grandparents would see me doing my thing and they bought me uh, a drum set, my first drum set, uh, a slingling set of um, Blue Sparkle. I'll never forget it. Uh, when I was uh, eight, eight years old. And I went on from there and uh, I just loved music all my life. And um, that's kind of how it started for me. Thanks, Steve. So what were some of the first concerts that you went to and when did you actually start getting into, you know, playing a little bit maybe in front of family first and then other people? Well, my older brother, my I have two brothers that are eight and uh, seven years older than me. Um, my brother that is seven years older than me, his name's Victor. He had bands, he played saxophones. So, and he always had groups and so I'd, watch his bands i'm still you know eight nine ten eleven something like that and i'd watch his bands practice in the basement now what's interesting about that is the great junie morrison was in one of his bands mm -hmm. um, marvin pearson both of those guys uh played on with the ohio players and of course junie went to play uh with uh, the mighty p funk as well 
along with having his own solo sides. Um, and uh, Marvin Pierce, the bass player, I'm sorry, uh, Marvin, um, mm, mm, can't think of his last name now, but brother Marvin from Lakeside, the bass player, Craig, yeah, Marvin Craig. He also played with my brother for a spell. And then there was Tim Dozier, who was the original drummer for Slave on Sly. <sighs> my brother's band. So now I'm, I'm on the steps. These guys are older than me. Um, and so I just sit on the steps and watch them rehearse. Um, and then when they leave, uh, the drummer, uh, who usually played with my brother's name was Michael Stevenson, said I could practice on his drums when they left. And so I, you know, I practiced and I got better and better along with playing my own set. And uh, so kind of got into the fabric where my name came into the neighborhood. And some people would say, yo, man, we're starting a band. You want to play drums? And I started on the local scene. Now, the talent shows and the battle of bands in Dayton were epic. So many of the groups I just mentioned, uh, Lakeside, uh, Slave, uh, Faisal, Son, all these people also were in the battle of the bands in Dayton. And some of those groups were pretty much intact for what uh, went on for their national and international acclaim. Our battle of the bands were epic, man. And so I kind of got my name and I just really got the bug. And uh, eventually I continued on through high school and I got a you know, call from this group called the Murphys out of uh, Toledo, Clifford Murphy, who played with Count Basie, great band leader, um, played, played a lot in Baker's. I think he was in Baker's uh, house band in Detroit for a while. Anyway, started playing in the lounge band scene, doing, you know, pop music, doing jazz, singing tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Uh, but then also doing some jazz uh, vibes as well. And it sort of grew and grew into my high school, end of high school. Moved out to the West Coast um, and joined with the great uh, Coke Escovito, one of the great percussionists of all time, who also played with the great uh, Carlos Santana and the whole Escovito family and went into hard salsa, straight ahead salsa uh, for a good while before I came back to Dayton and joined Slave. So my, my, um, my maturity and growth went down some winding roads, and but it, it really gave me a lot of... Uh, exciting musical times in various music uh, vibes, which as I got older and into my own career, I was able to draw from so many different directions. Did you have any uh, idea back then that uh, little young Sheila E might blossom and become the star that she ended up being? Well, I don't know if I understood, you know, the star she would be from a uh, singer and songwriter point of view. Um, because when we met, she was 19, and I'd never seen a female percussionist before. And she was playing, I mean, at 19, she was just as killing as she is today. She was ridiculous. Uh, of course, she played with a 17-piece salsa band, her father, and, and she were the band leaders. The first album, a Solo 2, uh, Billy Cobham produced that album, and I heard that band, a Pete and Sheila Escovito, with Billy Cobham on drum, 17-piece salsa band, killing it. I knew Sheila was a musician star. It wasn't until later that I realized, wow, you know, when she got with Prince. And I heard 
the early stuff that she had done uh, demo-wise before it even came out. And she was wanting to know what I thought about uh, some of the stuff she was thinking about getting down with Prince. Uh, so yes, that whole thing when she morphed into Sheila E, the producer, songwriter, singer, I mean, I didn't see all that coming, but I knew she was a star from the get. The first time I heard her, she was ridiculous. And of course, I had never seen another uh, female percussionist at that time. So, I mean, she was like, she was from Neptune as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I, I saw her back then too when she was uh, with George Duke and, uh, you know, Reach For It era. Um, and I knew she was great. And then when she came out with Prince with the whole different look, that was pretty wild, but I was happy for her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so talk to me a little bit, Steve, about the music scene in general. You, you touched on it in, in Dayton, and, and I mentioned how, you know, I was really oblivious to it as a scene, you know, growing up, even though I was a fan of all the bands, I didn't really know um, what it was like there. So what was it like growing up there? What's it like being there today? And, um, you know, why do you think it is such a, 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 a funk hotbed? And obviously we have the Hall of Fame that's going to open there uh, pretty soon, which is very cool. Definitely. Um, it was so cool because, first of all, let me step back and say James Brown came to Ohio. King Records, Bootsy, Catfish, he got these younger guys in his bands. So I'd say the first thing that happened was James Brown comes to Ohio. And of course, the great Sugarfoot Bonner, Leroy Sugarfoot Bonner, rest in peace, um, is out of Hamilton, moved to Dayton. Um, Roger Trotman, also out of Hamilton, and the Trotman family moved to Dayton, uh, which you know is, isn't very far from the Cincinnati area, uh, Hamilton. And so you had this, this excitement because of James Brown coming to Ohio and using a lot of Ohio cats in his band. And that was uh, an explosion for us. The Ohio players who had been playing along, I think they were doing things with, um, let's see. Oh, they were backing up artists um, coming up uh, before everybody knew them as the Ohio players, the Ohio Untouchables, Wilson Pickett, people like that. Um, so the scene was starting to get more interesting because of James Brown. Then the Ohio players started to make a move. And the next thing you know, boom, the Ohio players hit pain, the song pain, and it just blew up. And it was so original and unique. And the, all of the rest of us like, wow, that came out of Dayton. That wasn't Cincinnati. That wasn't the Isley Brothers. Um, this this came out of Dayton, and Dayton is significantly smaller than Cincinnati and Cleveland, and even Columbus as well. So uh, you know, for the Ohio players to hit, it just blew everybody's mind. And so we had all these bands and garages, garage bands, right? And we set out to uh, feel. Um, like we could get it done as well, not to try and sound like the Ohio players, but to be unique the way the Ohio players were unique in our own right. And so um, it was exciting. There were bands everywhere. The Battle of the Bands, like I said, were incredible, the talent shows. And then all of a sudden, more and more, 
another act would become national and international out of Dayton and it just mushroomed. And then the next thing you knew, we're in now in the mid seventies and early eighties. And we were like all over the charts together. You'd have Lakeside, Slave, um, Zap, Ohio uh, Players, uh, Faisal, all these guys, we'd all be sun. We'd all be on the charts together as we had also done these battles in the Battle of the Bands and talent shows. So it was, it was amazing to see what we were able to do to make it to the next level. And then we'd all do shows and see each other and go, yo, man, you remember back when from the Lake View Palladium or Roth High School, which was one of the places that had the Battle of the Bands. So that, that atmosphere was electric. Today, now that this thing has happened, and it uh, notoriety is coming to the Dayton scene. It's it's exciting to know now that people have found out about us. You know, like Detroit, Motown, Minneapolis. You know, the whole Minneapolis sound, Prince and and Flight Time, and those guys, Jimmy Jam, and those guys. Of course, Muscle Shoals out there in Alabama, uh, Memphis. Uh, you know, now Dayton people are going, man, what what happened in Dayton? What was in the water then? And I say, man, it was James Brown happened in Cincinnati and uh, the Isley Brothers and boom, man, Ohio players hit and we all got excited. Um, and the thing about Dayton, Dayton funk doesn't sound like one group that everybody sort of vibes off that sound. What's unique about Dayton is the fact that none of the acts, the international, national, international acts with all the hits, none of those groups sounded like. We totally all had our own concept. But the Ohio players influenced us all to be different, not to be like them. And I think that's one of the powerful things about the Dayton sound, especially from such a small area, that none of the acts sounded like. Do you think uh, any of you realized at that time when it was happening how special it was, or were you just so wrapped up in it, it was kind of the normal to you? Well, we didn't know just how special it was, but we knew the musicians were really, really good. We, you know, you could hear good music and good players, and we knew the players coming out of Dayton were just as good as anyone else. But when it blew up, when the Ohio players hit, that just that just unleashed the monster. So when the Ohio players hit and we were looking at what our contributions could be, we started to believe, yeah, man, something's going on here. Um, so yeah, it, it took some time. But once we, once the Ohio players hit and the way they hit, you know, they weren't just, oh, they had hit records, they completely hit and changed the game. Because prior to the Ohio players, Sly Stone, Sly and the Family Stones were just killing it. The Ohio players came and that they were like the best, greatest black band in the world. I mean, what the, I mean, they weren't just good. They were like trendsetters and completely unique. And we sort of judged our own growth by the Ohio players. And so, you know, after a while we knew we were special. After we started putting some records out and people like going, yo, that's crazy. Um, you know, like like uh, uh, the great uh, band Lakeside said, you know, the land of funk, <laughs> Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, the Ohio players were my favorite band. And um, I remember at the time, you know, a lot of uh, press 
uh, kind of said that they were sort of, uh, you know, just continuing or kind of copying Sly Stone. But like, as you say, and I knew that it was much more than that. They were original, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, man. All you had to do is listen to all the hits, right? And then play Sweet Sticky Thing. Sweet Sticky Thing was a whole nother element to funk music. And, you know, a lot of jazz, uh, uh, Tarantino, let me see, uh, Stanley Tarantino, yeah. He did a cover of it. Thing, just like we play funk, we play very song, uh, hit-oriented funk, fire, skin tight, so on and so forth. But Sweet Sticky Thing and some of the other ballads, you could tell it was more going on than the influence that Sly Stone had on them. And of course, he certainly did. But a lot of blues, like if you take Sugarfoot's vocal, you had to go back to Muddy, you had to go back to Howlin' Wolf, you have to go back to people like that to really understand how, how Sugarfoot uh, uh, married blues and R&B together uh, in a, such a masterful way. It, it, it was a whole new sound and everybody was starting to copy Sugarfoot. Let's keep it a hundred. A whole lot of big groups out there were copying Sugarfoot's uh, style and even to this day. <clears throat> so Steve, when you were with the Escovitos and you're doing that whole whole thing and into that, <clears throat> if I'm getting my time frames right, that was around the time when Slide hit big for Slave, their first hit. You know, when that exploded and you knew some of those guys, uh, what were you thinking? What was it like for you just knowing that they had hit it that big? Yeah, this was 77. Um, I had left high school, moved uh, to the uh, Bay Area. Now, some of the guys who were a little older than me, like Lakeside, they, those guys went to make it, went to L.A., Influenced by that, I said, well, I'm going to leave after high school, but I'm going to go to uh, the Bay Area. Um, and so I first heard Sly. Now, prior to going there, I was in a group called the Young Mystics. Let me step back just a little. And some of the people that were in that band, Floyd Miller, from who in, ended up being enslaved, uh, trombonist, vocalist, percussionist, um, Mark Adams, the bass player, of Slave was in the group Young Mystics. Tom Lockett, who played uh, saxophone, was in that group. And so, and other guys who were from Slave, we were in six period music class together, Danny Webster, Mark Hicks, so on and so forth. So um, we were in a group together, some of those guys uh, called the Young Mystics, and I was like mm, three years older than them. So they were three to four years, so I was a senior and they were freshmen, talking about Mark Adams, Floyd Miller, and Tom Lockett. That being said, um, I graduated, they were still in school, I went out to the West Coast. Stevie Washington, the original leader of Slave, came from New Jersey. I had left, I had, before I'd left, I had introduced them to um, Carter Bradley, who was the keyboard player on the first uh, Slave album. Um, and I'm sort of giving you a little history here because we were in a fusion band together. I introduced him to Mark Adams and them before I left. They turned into Slave. 
I then went into like I said the Escovitos, and I'm down as I'm grooving. I'm like doom, 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 doom. I'm like, man, I'm feeling this groove right here. I didn't know who it was. Slave, huh? I'm like, oh, I gotta snatch that album. I'm slide. I'm loving this. Flip the back on the album cover, and I'm like, yo, that's Mark Adams. That's for, that's the homies. So, of course, I get in touch and say, yo, I'm feeling that new stuff, man. Congratulations, blah, 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 blah. I'm out here doing my thing with the Escovito family, playing uh, uh, Latin salsa, blase, blase. He said, look, man, we're about to make a drum cheer. This, now we're moving into 78. About to make a drum cheer uh, change. Would you come and hit with us on drums? I was just finishing my tenure with the Escovitos. And as you mentioned earlier, Sheila had went with George Duke. Uh, and it's so interesting because uh, Mark Soskin, who played keys in that band, went with uh, Billy Cobham. You can hear him on the Magic album, killing it on the Magic album. And so everybody sort of went back because uh, 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 Carlos Santana was also the featured soloist with that unit for a while, um, taking a break from Santana and just playing some straight ahead salsa. He goes back to his band. I come back to Dayton and join Slave. I do the last tour, last leg of the tour on the Hardness of the World, a tour. And then we go into the studio with the concept album. And that was 78. Um, and it just seems like from 77 to 78 was just a blur. Everything just started happening real quick. Uh, but yeah, man, when I first heard Slide, I went and got the album and saw the homies, man. I was like blown away to hear these kids that I knew we were kicking it and they were just turning, they were freshmen and now they got this huge record out. Uh, and then the next thing I know, a year later, we're all back together and I'm back in the group and, you know, and with the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> So, and here's uh, that period. There's yeah. the uh, hardness and the concept covers. Yes, um, interesting. This picture on the back. Are you in that picture? No, I'm not. That's. Uh, I didn't that think so. Before I had gotten into the band, and and, and remember, at, in the beginning, I was just hired as a sideman to play drums. And it just morphed and morphed and morphed and morphed. And next thing I know, I'm writing. And of course, I start moving into vocals. And, you know, but it, it started as a sideman to play drums. And so some of those pictures, earlier pictures, I wasn't in. Yeah. And I want to get more detail on that for sure. So you come back and you get immersed in, in Slave. Um, but how did it transpire that you, you know, progressed from coming back and, and joining them to becoming, you know, such a leading force in the group, uh, co-writing some of the tracks on the concept and eventually becoming the lead singer? How did, how did that happen? Well, you know, it's sort of interesting every time I talk about it because I didn't see any of that coming. I mean, of course, you know, okay, I would sing some things uh, in backgrounds and maybe do a little something here or there because the original drummer, uh, Tim Dozier, did some singing as well. But the primary vocalists were Danny Webster and um, Mark Drack Hicks did his, his thing, they call me Drack. Uh, and Floyd, you know, Floyd Miller were the primary singers. Um, 
yeah. And I remember being in rehearsal and they're saying, hey, man, you sing? I said, yeah, you know, I do some singing. And, you know, guys knew that when I were in the Young Mystics, uh, you know, that I could sing, but I wasn't the lead singer or anything like that. So, you know, mess around and they say, hey, man, sing something. Let me see what you got. And I'm like, well, okay. And I'd sing a little something from the drums and people were like, that's an interesting style. So move fast forward uh, into the recording studio of uh, the concept. The first song that I played on, which I ever recorded uh, to be out there, you know, for the masses to hear was Stellar Funk. I played drums on that. And then I did my little, we are Stellar. I did my little thing on that. And, uh, you know, my first real lead was on the bridge of the song Coming Soon, Come Inside My Love Cabin, XTC's Moments Away. And I really got into that. And the guys were like, man, you've got an interesting style. We're going to start incorporating it more and more into what we do. Next thing I know, we go to the next album, which is Just a Touch of Love. And now I'm more in a primary role in writing and also in vocals. And in my first lead vocal song I did was Just a Touch of Love. And it just sort of morphed from there. It's not something that I had asked for. I was fine being the drummer. I, you know, I'd been a drummer all my life. I'd never been known as a singer in Dayton. I didn't have singing groups and things like that. And if I did, I had a little something, something where just some friends of mine and we would do some very odd songs like Marrakesh Express by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. And we just did different type of things that were just uh, music that we enjoyed. Um, not particularly to get into the Dayton scene talent shows or shows out there like that. So yeah, it sort of morphed in, like I said, when I heard myself on the radio and just a touch of love, I was blown away that, wow, man, I'm actually singing lead vocals. And that gave me more confidence as the tours went on and on. I'm like, yo, man, I'm a singer. And I always saw myself as a drummer that sang. And after time, I became a singer that also played drums. That took a while, though. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that, Steve. So <clears throat> how did you develop that unique style that you have? I mean, really, no one sounds like you. Um, I can hear, you know, a little bit of Sugarfoot, like I can hear in so many singers. But, you know, you're, you know, it's... It's a sound that lends itself excellently to funk, but also to ballads. And, um, you know, along with how you developed that sound, you know, how did you transition yourself to have the, the stage presence to kind of move front and center? Because it's not easy to move from behind the kit to the front of a stage. Yes, I'll deal with the latter part of the question first. We were on tour, like you just said, I'd always been the drummer. I never was like the front man in the groups in Dayton when we were coming up. So I really didn't know how to command the stage. I didn't really know because I first started playing the drums and singing with Slave. And they said, you know what? We need you to come out front. And it's like, okay. But I didn't really know how a front man did his thing. I didn't really know what would be my style or, or anything to do that. So when we were on tour, I'd watch JT from Cool in the Game. I'd watch Larry Dotson from Barquets. And I watched Charlie Wilson from the Gap Band. Those were the three main guys that I'd watch. And we toured a lot with these guys. Also, uh, the great Roger Trotman, 
from day I watched him as well. And, and I'm like, okay, this is what they do. And so what I would try to find my own sort of way in how to connect with the audience and how to uh, be interesting, not copy those guys, but sort of watch how they uh, transitioned in and out of songs and how they relate to audiences. And, and I sort of learned that on the job. I sort of, I always watched the other groups. Um, and so I learned right in the heat of it all how to be a front man. And, and those guys, uh, to this day, I love them on rest in peace to the great Roger Trotman. Um, but hey, you know, I just watched uh, my peers and, and found out Rick James as well, too. Um, so, yeah, you know, I just kind of checked out other people and say, OK, this is what they're doing. And let me find my way in all of that. And, and it was interesting at first because. I never had aspirations to be that that dude, so to speak, you know, right there front and center. So it took me a minute to to get into that type of mindset on, hey, you know, I'm doing my thing. We doing it up here, but usually I'm in the background and now I'm in the forefront of this thing. And so it, it took also not only just learning what others were doing, but it took my mind to come out of the background into the forefront. Um, and that took a little time as well. And what about your singing style? Singing style. I love to mimic solos, like I'd lit mimic Coltrane solos. I would mimic and learn uh, Jimi Hendrix solos, especially the solo from um, Band of Gypsies, Alive, Fillmore, the solo he did on Machine Gun. The Machine Gun solo, which I happen to feel is the greatest guitar solo ever for me. And I listen to a lot of different guitar players style-wise. Um, and I listen to a lot of different music. I'd be into Yes. I'd be into, like I said, uh, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I was in the James Taylor, I was in the James Brown, you know, I was in all this type of music, but I wasn't particularly a singer. So I didn't have to learn, this is how David Ruffin did it. This is how Stevie Wonder did it. This is how Sly did it. I didn't have that, well, you gotta learn your Sly tunes, we're doing Sly covers. I didn't have to do all of that. I just did this in my spare time. People didn't even know I'm mimicking and trying to learn Coltrane solos. So when I did my thing, I didn't have a set pattern already embedded into me of what my thing was. I just responded emotionally to the music. And to this day, that's what I do. I just respond emotionally to the music. I don't pull out a particular thing out of a particular bag, which is why my music has changed through the years. Uh, because I just respond. And I, I think primarily because I wasn't put in a bag early to learn and have to sound like so-and-so and so-and-so. Well, whatever it was, it worked fantastically. Um, and a lot of music listeners, including myself, are very thankful for how that worked out.